Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. So uh, I'm going to teach on uh, prayer this morning. Uh, we're going to close out about two months of prayer talk and solitude talk and loving your enemies talk. So I'm going to take a teaching of Jesus uh, straight out of, not a Compton, but straight out of Matthew Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, if you could turn there really quick. I'm going to read about three or four verses before I do that. I need to set this up. So we've been talking about love. Everyone say love. So we've been talking about uh, God's love, uh, loving our enemy. That was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a radical imperative. Jesus actually gives us a radical imperative to love our enemies. Uh, he talks about non-retaliation, like if someone slaps you, you can't punch him in the face. Can I get an amen to that? Uh, he also talks about uh, not objectifying people, and we're going to talk more about that as we go into Lent for the People, which is our new sermon series next week, and uh, that's going to be a six-week series that uh, leads us up to Easter. Uh, we, we also talked about anger and contempt, and, and it's, it's so important that we don't collude with anger because behind anger is this idea that we think we're better than everybody else, and no one is better than anybody else. God loves you, right, equally. And so behind all of this is just this fact about our universe. God has designed our universe to run on love, not on hate, not on violence, not on greed, uh, not on um, uh, lust. You can't lust your way into fulfillment. You can't greed your way into fulfillment. You can't violence your way into fulfillment. The only way you can truly be fulfilled as a human is you have to love your way according to what Jesus has spoken to us, right? To not to love is to go against the flow of the universe. So this is basic to the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus's playbook for us. Can I get an amen to that? This is his script. This is his story for us. One scholar said, hey, um, hell is a catastrophic failure to not uh, to, par- to not to participate in the love or the agape of God. And so I think it's important that we, we stay in step uh, or stay in tune with Jesus's script. I'm kind of mixing my metaphors this morning. Um, but that's important. So that's the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to get into the teaching of, of prayer that Jesus gives us and gives to his disciples. Before I do that, it's important to know that our story is not our story. Our story is not our story, right? Our story is God's story. And it's important that we play his story. It's important that we play the script that God gives us. Horrible story. I wasn't planning on sharing this at the second service, but because you guys are my favorite service, I'm going to share it. Uh, so uh, I was playing basketball at Centennial. We were in districts, and we were playing Mountain Home. I was a junior. And we were the number one team in the state. And we, we played Mountain Home in the regular season, beat them by like 38 points. So we're playing them. This is like the play-in state game. It might have been the semis. Can't really remember because it just turned out really bad for us. So we're about 15, 20 seconds left in the game. We're down by one. And so we got in the huddle, and our coach came to us. I was a I was, uh, point guard, played the one. And then my buddy, he was like a first-team All-State. He was the number two. And uh, so his name's Joey. Don't judge Joey at the end of this story. 
uh, Joey did wrong by our team. Anyways, so we're, ta- we're, we're, we're in a huddle. Our coach kind of drew, drew up this play. Again, we're down by one. Uh, you know, we should win this game. Uh, this team wasn't that good. If you're from Mountain Home, we love you. God bless you. You're amazing. Uh, but we always dominated your teams. Anyways, so uh, we get the play, and we go out. Uh, we actually head to, to midcourt, and uh, my buddy Joey uh, leans over and says, Chris, we're, we're not going to do that play. He's a senior. I'm a junior. I'm like, all right, dude. I was supposed to enter the ball into our three uh, to, to Chris, uh, but Joey wanted me to give him the ball, so I decided to give him the ball. So I threw the ball. They inbound the ball to me, threw it to uh, Joey, looked over to my coach. My coach takes his, like, clipboard and slams it on the ground. I felt devastated. I just kind of pointed at Joey, right? We're in the middle of the game. It's at Capitol. Nothing good ever happens at Capitol, right? Lord have mercy. So there's a couple thousand people there. Like, everyone's like, what is going on? So Joey gets the ball. He tries to break down his defender, goes right, then goes left. He loses the ball. We end up losing the game. And I blame Joey for that loss. There's something to be said about not playing according to the, the, the playbook or not playing according to, to the script, to not love your enemy, to not love your neighbor, to not love like Jesus wants us to love is, is kind of like that. That game for us was a microcosm of choosing not to love like Jesus. That's your greatest call. Can I get an amen to that? Your greatest call is to reflect the love of Jesus into this world. It's not to be the greatest human on the planet. Your greatest call is not to make the most money. Your greatest call is not just to do great things so people can tell you that you've done great things. The greatest call of a follower of Jesus is to reflect this radical agape love back into this world. Like if I don't grow this church to 10,000, which isn't my job by the way, but if I don't grow this church to 10,000, I'm okay with that as long as I know that by God's grace, I have loved the hell out of this city. That's what we're called to do. Not just to make money. If you make money, that's great. Not just to have a nice car. Not just to have a nice house. How and a house. Not just to have good things, and that's great. But our summons from heaven is, is to love like Jesus. So let's play the right script, and that's what Jesus is talking to his disciples about in the Sermon on the Mount. So we come to this teaching uh, on prayer. So, so how do we enter into this, this agape love? I mean, how, how do we love people? How do we not use people for our own sake? How, how do we cease from objectifying people, right? Using them, abusing them, or commodifying our relationships with each other, like uh, like someone's a vending machine, okay? So uh, we do this, unfortunately, in church. I'll come to you, and if you give me an encouraging word, I'll give you an encouraging word back. But if you don't bring anything to me, I ain't gonna bring anything back to you. That's called commodification. How do we cease from that? Because overall, that's about objectifying people. We're using people as things, and people are not things. People are made in the image of God, and wow, I wish people would give me an amen this morning. Everyone in this room is made in the image of God. So how do we enter into this love? It's hard. You can't do it in your own strength. Man, I know my own human nature. 
I just know maybe if you came up to me today at the end of the service and you slapped me in the face, I probably would punch you back. Don't be offended, right? How do we turn the other cheek? Like, how do we go the extra mile? How do we love the people that we really don't like? Well, Jesus said in verse 5, when you pray, Jesus doesn't say if you pray. He says, when you pray. He's essentially saying disciples. Everyone say disciples. If you're serious about agape love, if you're serious about heaven and earth coming together, if you're serious about God's justice bearing itself, bearing itself out in this planet, then prayer is a non-negotiable. Prayer is not like um, an if clause or an if thing. Prayer is something that you do every single day. You got to pray if you want to make it through the day, right? According to MC Hammer, come on. So, and when you pray, Jesus thinks that prayer is pretty powerful. So this is a little bit recap of what we've been talking about for the last few months. Uh, prayer is unlimited, I want you to hear this, is unlimited by space and time. What does that mean? Well, C.S. Lewis said prayer is not a weaker kind of causality, it's a greater kind of causality. It's stronger. The prayer, in fact, is the strongest thing or force in the universe. And because it's so powerful, God has to exercise discretionary power over it. So what does that mean? Well, it means don't be disillusioned if God doesn't answer your prayer. Because if God doesn't answer your prayer, that means that God saved you from destroying yourself. Like when you were in seventh grade. The reason why God didn't answer your prayer to marry that girl is because if you, were actually, if you actually married that girl and you ended up being with her, it would have destroyed your soul. God, God always answers prayer because prayer is so powerful because that's how God has designed us in our relationship with him. Prayer is our way to meet with God. Some of you, you've asked the question, God, I was praying about this job and, and the door didn't open. And I thought it was like, I, I thought it was something that you wanted me to do and maybe you're frustrated today. Or maybe you've been praying about something for some time and you haven't heard maybe an answer to that prayer. The good news is God listens to every prayer. The good news is, is that God also has discretion over your prayer life. And yes, his word to you is always yes. Yes to flourishing. Yes, you're going to make it. Yes, you're going to get it through the day, right? I don't even know what that means, but go with me. Yes, God's going to work out everything for your good. But sometimes God has to say no. Because what we ask God sometimes, if God gave it to us, it would destroy us. So prayer, come on, is so powerful. And I'm sick and tired of, of trying to convince Christians to pray because this Western world has colluded with the secularization of our minds. We believe that this world is disenchanted as if we live in this closed system. And Christians, I've heard it from so many Christians, oh, you just gotta be practical, we can't pray. My argument is that prayer is meeting up with God and it is the most practical thing that you could do. 
and when you come into the presence of Jesus and God puts your life back together and you get to see him for who he really is and he begins to change your heart and your mind where heaven and earth come together, my God, you'll actually start living like a Christian. So prayer is the most powerful thing you can do, not because prayer is inherently powerful, it's because it's our way to meet up with God. So Jesus said, hey, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love, I've never preached on this, this text before. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, Jesus says, I say to you that they have received their reward. Jesus uses um, hypocrites 17 times. We're actually, uh, uh, scholars uh, who study Western lit have basically traced the etymology of, of hypocrisy all the way back to Jesus. Jesus is the one who pop popularized hypocrites. To be a hypocrite in this ancient setting uh, was basically a reference to Greco-Roman actors. There was nothing wrong with it, but actually over time it was translated to be a hypocrite, it was translated or began to mean practicing deceit. So Jesus is saying, hey, here we have a major block. Disciples, if you want to enter into my love, if you want God's justice to take over your life, if you want to be who I've called you to be, then you cannot practice the way of the hypocrites. Jesus thinks that hypocrisy is the major block to most followers of Jesus from entering into his kingdom. Why? Well, hypocrisy is not simply you say one thing and do another thing, right? That's what we think of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is so much more deeper than that. Hypocrisy is doing something so you can be seen by somebody. What's funny, but it gets deeper. Are you ready to go deep? Maybe you've been swimming in the shallow pool. Let's go to the deep end of the pool, right? So, Hypocrisy for Jesus basically meant, in, in an honor-shame culture, it basically meant this, that your perception of yourself, let's use the word identity. Everyone say identity. Your identity, your self-understanding, how you knew yourself was filtered through the eyes of somebody else. Basically, your identity in an honor-shame culture was formed and shaped by how the public saw you. So if you were shamed, you didn't live up to a standard in this ancient setting, and you were shamed by the public, by definition in this honor-shame culture, you ceased to exist as a person because your identity was shaped by how other people saw you. Now, you can see where this gets crazy because how many of you know public opinion changes all the time? Right? It's, it's always, it's really fluid. We come to Acts chapter 20, 28. How many of you love Pastor Paul? Pastor Paul gets shipwrecked. He builds a fire. I mean, Pastor Paul and I would totally get together. We would totally love our company because he makes fires. I could totally make a fire. He loves wilderness. I could totally be in the wilderness. I'm totally, you know, that kind of hands-on guy. I can make fires. I can cook my own food. I can fish. I can hunt because I'm an Idahoan. Everyone said amen to that. So he's making a fire, and uh, this, this snake jumps out and bites him on the hand. So all the locals, like, they're like, gasp, and they're like, oh, he's, he must be, this is their opinion, he must be a murderer. And then a couple hours go by, and uh, Paul doesn't fall over, 
And then they start talking to each other. Well, he must be a God, right? Public opinion changes. It, it's, it, sometimes it doesn't even make sense. And when Jesus is saying right before this teaching on prayer that, guys, you got to love your enemy, and everyone else in this honor-shame culture is saying, no, you got to hate your enemy. If you're going to live by how other people see you, it's going to be impossible to enter into the love that God not only has for you, but the love that God wants to flow through you into this world. So Jesus would basically say, if you're living by public opinion, homie, don't play that. Come on. I can't play that. You can't enter my love. You can't enter my blessing. And it's even darker than that. It's even deeper than that. If you're going to live by public opinion, just so you know, public opinion is organized in such a way as to resist God himself. So Jesus said, hey, don't be the hypocrite. Don't live that way. Don't live by the opinions of others. Don't even live by your own opinion. I want you to live by the opinion of my Father in heaven. Because he's the one that wants to give you the story. He's the one that want to bless you. He wants to bless you with the script. He wants to bless you with purpose. And the only way you can really thrive and flourish in the kingdom of Jesus is when you go to the Father and you let him speak to you. The problem with the Western world is that our issue isn't so much, okay, someone out there shames us and we're living through how someone else sees us and our identity comes from other people. No, it's shifted in the Western world. Western world, ultimate authority has been relocated in how we feel about ourselves. It's not even about how God feels about us. If I could just get true to myself, right? If I can figure out myself and somehow connect to my true self, then I can enter into a fulfilled life. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Um, I don't want you to care about the opinion of other people. I don't want you to even care about how you feel about yourself. Can I get an amen to that? I want you to care more than anything about the opinion of my father. Like, this is, and I'll get really real with you this morning. I don't care about your opinion about my preaching and pastoring. I don't. Does that, Chris, does that mean you don't love me? No. The reason why I don't care about your opinion is because I do love you. Because if I care about your opinion, that means I'm not caring about God's opinion. And I have a responsibility as a lead pastor of Capital Church not to cater to what we want or what we think we need. I have to be responsible to be faithful to God's word, God's truth for this church and this world. And can I be honest with you? I don't even care about my opinion about myself. Because there are some days I just, I do not like myself, right? That I have good days, and then I have bad days. Bad days where I just don't feel right. You know, I'm thinking about, I don't know, why the Dallas Cowboys lost, and I'm just like, my mind is drifting. I wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Maybe I don't feel well. But then there's other days that I feel, feel really good. But here's the thing. I can't live by people's opinion. I can't live by my own opinion. 
I have to live by the opinion of Jesus, the Father in heaven. Story that illustrates this is found, in, and I want to thank Shane for preaching straight out of the, the Chronicles of Narnia last week. So in inspiration, as an inspiration, I'm going to go to the voyage of the Don Shredder. Are you ready for this? I've shared this before. How many of you read the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, many of you. So the voyage of the Don Shredder. Remember Eustace? Eustace is an annoying uh, guy. He's censorious. He's vain. He thinks he's better than everybody else. So he's putting down his cousins. His cousins will be Lucy and Susan, Edmund, and Peter. And so they're going to an, an island. And uh, they get to this island, and Eustace gets out, and he sees this enchanted gold. And so he goes over to the gold. He touches it. He wants it. Uh, he instantly turns into a dragon. C.S. Lewis is basically saying, hey, um, this is what happens when you get your identity from somebody else, or this is what happens when you build your life on your own opinion about yourself. It dragonfies you. It's not even a word, but just go with it. You're turned into a dragon. So Eustace is a dragon. He likes it for a while because he can fly, but then after a while, he, just, he wants to be a little boy again. So he has a dream, and Aslan comes to him in this dream and takes him to a garden, there's a lot of biblical imagery. And in this garden, there's, in the middle of the garden, there's a, a well, a reflecting pool. So Aslan looks at, at Eustace and says, undress yourself, which in our modern uh, translation is, okay, uh, Eustace, because you're a dragon, I want you to claw your dragon skin off. So Eustace, he tries to claw the dragon skin off, and he, he goes for about an hour. He's just clawing his skin off. He feels like he finally peeled off the last layer of dragon skin stuff. He looks into the reflecting pool, and in despair, he sees not a little boy, he sees a dragon. And then Aslan stops him and said, let, let me take care of this. That's my translation. Obviously, it didn't go like that. Uh, but Aslan takes his claws and begins to claw off the dragon skin of Eustace. Finally, Eustace exclaimed that it was painful, it was difficult, it was hard, but once Aslan was done, he looked back into the reflecting pool and he sees a little boy. Again, he's back to being human. You see, what happens is when you live by the opinions of others and when you build your identity on something other than God, it turns you into something less than human. And the only way you can get back from that, you, you, can't, you can't figure yourself out, right? It, 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 if, if you want to be true to yourself, that, it, that requires or necessitates that you have to figure yourself out. I, I'm 40 years old, and I've, just, I've come to the point that the quest to figure myself out will never happen. Like, I don't know why I don't like broccoli. I don't know why my wife loves kale. I don't know why she is a vegetarian, vegan, whatever, right? I don't know why I like the Dallas Cowboys. They break my heart every year. I don't know why I do the things that I do. I don't know why I have an aversion for this or I like this. I don't know why I make the millions of decisions that I do. I will never be able to get to the bottom of myself. C.S. Lewis is saying, hey, if you truly want to be human, if you truly want to be who God wants you to be, if you want to embrace the call of God on your life, you cannot do it in your own strength. Only Jesus, only your Father in heaven can come and give you your true story, your true identity. Come on, the true script, the true playbook. And once you receive that, that's when you can live out God's goodness and love to this world. So verse 6, Jesus said, 
Okay, hypocrisy, you can't live by that. You cannot live by your own opinion or the opinion of others. You have to live by the opinion of your father. So how do you do that? What's the context? Verse six, Jesus said, but when you pray, go into your room and everyone say, shut the door. Shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Shut the door. Everyone say, shut the door. Modern translation, turn off the TV. Come on, turn off your phone. We talked about this four or five weeks ago. How many of you have been on the internet and it felt like Alice in Wonderland going down the hole? And like you're just after like four or five hours, your mind is numb and you're sad inside as you laugh at a little kitten YouTube thing, right? cuddling a tiger and you're crying and you're like, why am I crying? And then right after that, you see clowns juggling fire and you're like laughing again, but inside you're really sad and you're like, what's wrong with me? What, what, what is that? Well, I, to me, it's, it's a distraction from God's opinion, ultimately, that he has of you. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to YouTube. There's nothing wrong with, man, watching some good TV shows. Can I get an amen to that? Good TV shows, can I get an amen to that? Clean TV shows, can I get an amen to that? We're going to be talking about lust in a couple weeks. Please get ready. It's going to be awesome. Anyways, where am I going with this? I do not know. Back to being distracted. We're, we're distracting our lives, if we're not careful, into spiritual oblivion. And Jesus says, hey, the secret, the context or the condition for prayer is you gotta shut the door. You gotta shut out public opinion. You gotta shut out just life. This is not isolation, this is solitude. And when you shut the door, that's when you can pray to your father. Everyone say father. Not a faceless bureaucrat, not a disembodied mind who's making decisions about your life and doesn't even care about you from some location out in space. No, you're praying in the context of solitude to your Father who is in secret. Can I say this again? Shane's word was awesome. But you're not praying to a faceless bureaucrat, I'll try to talk, who doesn't know anything about your life. You are praying to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. One scholar, a Christian scholar, did a research. I think I quoted this a couple weeks ago. Uh, he uh, did a survey of 20,000 Christians, and he identified busyness as the biggest problem. He said this, it may be the case that, number one, Christians have assimilated a culture of busyness, hurry and overload, which leads to, number two, that God is increasingly marginalizing Christians' lives which leads to number three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to number four, Christians becoming more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions on how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to busyness, and then the cycle continues. He declares the culture of speed is destroying our relationship with our Father in heaven. The Satan is not stronger than Jesus. There are not forces in our world that can trip you up and keep you from God's plan. This researcher is basically saying it is our collusion 
with pathological busyness and the distraction that ensues that keeps us from our Father in heaven and hearing him talk to us. I don't know, this last week I was praying about something. And isn't it amazing that, and many of you have experienced this, when God comes to you and brings clarity about a situation, how everything changes? That's what I want for everyone in this room. And that happens within the context of prayer. So Jesus continues, yes, don't, don't collude with you know, practicing the art of hypocrisy. Don't worry about what others think. I want you to worry or concern yourself about the opinion of my Father. Verse 7, he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need. I love this. Can I get a good amen to this? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This is so good. This is the sine qua non or the hallmark of the Christian story. For your father, not a faceless bureaucrat, knows what you need before you ask him. So be free when you go and pray to your father. So what is Jesus talking about? Vain repetition. Well, the pagan religious life was rooted in anxiety. The pagans never, in the, in, in the far ancient Near East, uh, in, in their experience with the gods, they never knew where they stood. The gods one day could be vengeful. The gods could be um, kind. But the gods were whimsical. And so they would use, and we know this from a lot of scholar, a scholarly research, that pagans use a lot of um, magic incantations, use a lot of mindless repetitions to court the favor of the gods. Jesus is saying, hey, all that mindless repetition of words, what you're trying to do is you're trying to manipulate the gods to do something for you, and that's indicative that you do not have a clear perception of reality because there's one God, come on, and he's in charge of human history, and he is working everything for your good, and he's not some disembodied mind that does not care about you. He is your father. I love that. He is your father. And then we come to verse eight. Jesus then says, guys, before you come to this place of prayer and pray, know that your father knows exactly what you need before you even know what you need. See, this is what I, I love that statement because uh, being a dad, I can relate to this now. When I wake up every morning, I have a plan for my kids. I know exactly what I want them to do. I know my kids like the back of my hand and all the parents said amen to that. I, I, I know when Wesley's wearing dirty underwear, he gives me that face. And so as he's walking out the door, he's doing this to me. And I'm like, dude, get back in there, get some clean underwear on. Parents, we just know things, right? Kids, if you're here, trust us. We know you more than you know yourself. I know when my son has that look on his face, he's going to jump on me, he's going to try to punch me, so I, I have to brace myself, right? I just, I know my children. I know what they're thinking. And this is what I love about being a parent is that I get to make the decisions. I am so glad that I'm not a five-year-old anymore. Can I get any man to that? But I have a plan for my children, I know exactly what I want for them, but I also know what they need. And every time we go to Chick-fil-A, 
Chick-fil-A is the best Christian chicken in the world. Can I get any man to that? My kids, my kids are always, they're always like, dad, 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 please make sure you give me the two chickens, the chicken strips. And they, they say, it's like, a, I'm not into musical theory, but it's like, it, would it be cacophonous? It's like a um, cacophonous sound. It's like this striking noise. Mark Francie just told me that I was right. Okay, thank you, Mark Francie. The musical theorist right there in the front. But at the same time, they're like, dad, please give me this chicken. Please give me this fries. Uh, please give me apple juice. Please give me ranch. And please give me Chick-fil-A sauce. And I have to quiet them down. And I'm like, guys, I already know what you need. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to try to do anything. I'm a good dad. Am I a good dad, Wesley? Yes, dad. <laughs> Am I a good father, Quincy? Yes, dad, stop it. Then you be quiet and trust that I know exactly what you need. And so when we come to prayer, you don't have to be overwhelmed. Like, I, and I, I tend to be a little too philosophical when it comes to prayer. It's like, I remember as a young man, I'd, be, I'd get overwhelmed and almost paralyzed because I'm like thinking there are just so many prayer things out there. There's so many things to pray for that I'm not sure where to start. Have you ever been there before? Like, do I need to pray for world peace? Or do I need to pray for the Dallas Cowboys? Or do I need to pray for the mayor? Or do I need to pray for that person or my neighbor? And do I obviously have a lot of problems. I have at least 99 problems. Come on, right? So how do I figure this prayer experience out? Verse 8 sets you free. You don't have to worry about praying for any of your needs because your Father in heaven is already at work. And he's already taking care of things. And it sets you free from being paralyzed by anxiety. Well, verse 8 is evocative. It points us all the way back to, as Shane talked about last week, Genesis chapter 22. I want to land this plane here. In Genesis 22, many of you are familiar with the story about Father Abraham. Everyone say, Father Abraham. He had way too many, he had many sons. One son in particular, his name was Isaac. So you know this story. It begins, if you're living in the ancient Near East and you're hearing this story read for the very first time, you would think, oh, this is a pagan story. Oh, I know where this is going. You have a, you have a God who comes to his servant, Abraham, and tells him to sacrifice his son. Oh, pagan in, in the ancient Near East, that's what happened all the time. The pagan religious experience always led to child sacrifice. So you're, you're totally like in that, you understand what's going on. But the story changes. So Abraham hears the summons from God. He wakes up the next morning, gets Isaac, gets some wood, uh, gets his two servants and goes on a three-day journey. This three-day journey is a signpost of things to come. Our Father in heaven sends his son, Jesus, who goes to the cross, who dies for us, defeats the power of evil. And on the third day, everyone say the third day, comes back from the dead, launching new creation. I could spend five hours just talking about that, but I won't today. I'll spare you. So Abraham comes up to the mountain. And he has his son now, his son, Isaac. The mystery about this whole story is Isaac is, he's a champ. Man, I got to, let's give him a hand clap. You don't have to do that. Just get a hand clap in your, in your mind, okay? Um, because he's pretty amazing. Because if my father, Pastor Ken, just like 
today says, hey, Chris, God told me that we're supposed to go up to like Table Rock. And I go up to Table Rock after a three-day journey, and there's an altar on top of Table Rock, and he puts me on the altar. I ain't going to go down quiet, okay? <laughs> if he has that crazy look, and he puts up a knife, and he's going to plunge that into me, I'm going to take that knife. Dad, I love you almost unconditionally, but I need to take, I love you unconditionally. <laughs> I won't hurt you. Uh, I just got to protect myself. And so with Isaac, this is an amazing story. Isaac, he lays himself down. Abraham takes the knife. He's about ready to plunge it into his son. And this is where the story turns. If you're a pagan, you would have been blown away. An angel stops Abraham and directs his attention to a thicket. And in the thicket is a ram. I love this story. And God, and Abraham, excuse me, takes the, the ram and puts it on the altar and sacrifices it to God. Pagans would have been blown away because in this world, as a worshiper, your religious experience as a pagan was all about you bringing the sacrifice, you bringing the resources, you bringing the magic incantations to court the favor of the gods. It, the story was all about you trying to placate the wrath of the vengeful deities. But this story turns. This story is not about Abraham doing one stinking thing for his father. This is a story about God bringing all the provision, God bringing all the resources, God bringing all the generosity, God bringing all the good stuff to Abraham. Wow, I wish we were in a Pentecostal church this morning. This is a beautiful story. Prayer is not about you courting the favor of your father. As a follower of Jesus, you go to a place of prayer, and it's in this place of prayer where God, your Father in heaven, who knows exactly what you need, brings all the generosity, brings all the provision, brings all the grace, brings all the goodness, all the love, brings time and space and heaven and earth, and he blesses you. The Christian story is not about us doing something for God. It is about our Father in heaven doing everything for us. Wow. It's beautiful. So prayer is not you changing your voice and trying to manipulate your Father in heaven or trying to sound smart or trying just to be something you're not. Jesus said, don't come to the place of prayer and be something that you're not. Just simply be who you are. Because your father already knows you're messed up. And he's the one that brings all the goodness, all the grace. Why is my voice raspy? I don't know. But he brings all the love to us. So I have a challenge for you. We come to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus then lays down the condition for prayer. And then he says, guys, I want you to pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, we don't begin with ourselves. Hallowed be your name. This is where I want you to start. There's a sequence that I want you to follow, guys. You begin with your Father, not with your needs. We don't begin with, oh, my feelings. No, we begin with, oh, my Father. And then that leads us into 
when you realize that your father's good and he wants to give you good gifts and he's going to turn out everything for your good, then you, you transition into your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will. Not my plans. Not, not my vision. It's not about me, God. It's about you. I want your justice. I want your healing. You start to begin to, you, you really, you begin to pray for your neighbors and people at work and begin to pray for, man, the guy who dumps trash in their backyard and is an Oakland Raider fan and you love them and you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. God begins to change your heart as you pray. God, not, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me, but you. And you're praying heaven on earth. This is not vertical eschatology. We're not praying, oh, one day take me to heaven. No, we're praying heaven, let it come together on this earth and let it transform our city. And then as you pray that, you move in to give us this day, our daily bread. You pray for provision to be on his mission, not your mission. You see, your calling and your uh, purpose is not something you create. It's something that you discover. And so you begin to pray this, Father, I thank you for your provision and your grace to be who you want me to be today to my family, to my friends, to my church, to my city. And then you move into forgive us our debts, for we have also, or we also have forgiven our debtors. You pray, God, I thank you every single day. You forgive me. Every single day, you forgive me. Because there's so many things I need forgiveness for. And you thank the Father for forgiving you for yesterday's outburst. The week before, that little crazy that happened between you and your neighbor, right? Or whatever happened, you thank the God, you thank your Father in heaven who forgave you. And when you live in that reality that your Father in heaven forgives you, it just makes it easy to forgive people who offend you. I'm convinced that people who hold on to resentment and bitterness in relationship to things that have happened to them and maybe tragic things, I want to be sensitive how I say this, if people hold on to things or bitterness, excuse me, or resentment related to things that have happened to them or people that have maybe done maybe horrible things to you, some of it is connected, if you hold on to that, connected to maybe a lack of understanding how much your Father has forgiven you. I'm not saying this. Jesus is saying this. And then once you're free, you're free from bitterness and resentment and you're passionate to reconcile with people, then you go into, and lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Your Father in heaven wants to protect you. Can I get an amen to that? Your Father in heaven cares for you. So when you pray the Lord's Prayer, because it's so revolutionary and people are not going to understand it and they're going to persecute you, you got to pray, deliver me from evil. Because when you start to live like, like, like God wants you to live, people are not going to like it. And you're going to suffer maybe a little bit of persecution, but that's okay because you pray, God, you got my back. God, you're going to deliver me from all evil. So if I'm at my place of work and I'm blessing people and I'm forgiving people and I'm loving people and I'm praying for people, I know some people aren't going to like it and they might talk behind my back, but I thank you that you have my back and you're going to protect me and you're going to watch over me so that you're ultimately glorified. And then you end, for yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. So the challenge this week that I have for everybody in this room, i like all of us to do it. Maybe for some of you this is going to be easy. Maybe for some of you this might not be as easy. 
but I want you to take one hour of your day, shut the door, turn off the TV, and in one setting, don't break it up into increments like maybe 15 minutes here and maybe the next day three minutes and maybe the next day 18 minutes. I just know how we all work. Take one hour. Some of you just gasp or breathe. You're like, don't. Some of you, your teeth are chattering right now. Like an hour, I want you to take one hour, shut the door, turn off everything, and I want you to pray the Lord's Prayer just one time. One whole hour. And let's see what God will do in your life and through your life. Amen. And this is how we turn into good news people. This is how we turn into blessing only people. This is how we turn into forgiveness only people. And is second service alive today? Come on. So let's pray. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Thank you, Jesus. Father, you're so good. Your eyes closed, your heads bowed. I just want to ask, I want to see if there's anybody in this room, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you made a decision a while ago to follow Jesus, and you're just not living for him. And you want this love, this indestructible love to take over your life. You want the fulfillment that only Jesus can bring to you. Some of you, you're broken. And I got good bad news. The bad news is you can't fix yourself. The good news is Jesus can fix you. He's the one that can put your life back together. And if you want this, if you want to enter into this love in this healing, into the life that Jesus has for you. On the count of three, could you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. One, two, three. Anyone like that? Thank you, thank you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Thank you. Fifteen. Fifteen people making a decision to let God's love transform them. Church, can you give God a hand this morning? Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.